Welcome everyone to Cardinal Conversations. My name is Dr. Ryan Cheatham with the Center for Academic and Career Success, and I'm joined by my colleague, Brett LaPrade, the Director of Career Development for the Office of Alumni Engagement. Hey, Brett. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? It's going. It was a busy weekend, so I feel like it is kind of recovering through working in a regular week. Sure. Because... As we record this, we just had graduation this weekend. Yeah, it was great. We had graduation. We celebrated the 50th anniversary of the partnership program. Nice. Their graduation in 1973. So Mm -hmm. if you've been listening to Cardinal Conversations, the very first episode was with one of those graduates, Ron Hicks. Ron. Ron, unfortunately, was able to be there, but uh, many of his classmates were there Mm. and classmates through the years that were part of that program. So busy, but it was, you know, awesome things. Graduation's always... You might not be the most fun event, but it's right. a good time. Exactly. And the rain held off, right? The rain held yeah, off for the yeah. most part. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm, so that yeah. was good. It was yeah. nice cloud coverage. And mm-hmm. from what I understand, the speaker spoke pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah which you don't always get at graduation. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> you say that as if you have some experience. Oh, no, Brett. Just no. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, that that's that's fantastic. Um, a lot of people around campus worked really hard over the weekend mm-hmm. to, to make it memorable for the class of 2023. Yeah. Um, so um, congratulations to them. And I, I wish them nothing but the best. Yeah. Yeah. And all yeah. the endeavors they have coming up. Yeah, there's a lot of good things that they're going to be doing. Mm-hmm. We're going to be doing support for them for the young alumni as mm-hmm. they're taking those first steps in their careers. And yeah. We hope this podcast is one way that they're supported. Absolutely. And maybe some of them will have on the podcast one day. Yeah, yeah. that'll be great. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, should we get to our interview today? Let's do it. Welcome to our conversation with the Cardinal. This is our flagship segment for Cardinal Conversations. We get to talk with an alumna or an alumnus about their career, advice they have along the way, what the journey was like, see what we can glean from them, and hear a few stories along the way. So, Ryan, I'm excited to have with us today Dr. Shalki Talia. Dr. Talia completed his MA here at Catholic University in 1975, as well as his PhD in 1987 in the Department of Semitic and Egyptian Languages and Literatures, which might ring a bell. So I'm really glad that Dr. Talia has joined us today. And a special treat, he's live with us. It's our first live recording. Yeah. So Dr. Talia, thanks for joining us today. How are you? Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing fine. Good. Okay. I'm glad. So far. <laughs> yeah, we made it over here from Mullen Library, That's where the right. Semitics Department yeah, is. With my cane. With your cane. That's right. So Dr. Talia is a long-tenured faculty member here and has seen, at this point, over 50 years of university history, yeah, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Ryan, where do you think we should start with Dr. Talia? Well, Dr. Talia, thank you again for coming on today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for the gracious invitation. I guess where I'd like to start is how did you or what led you to Catholic University to pursue your PhD? Could you tell us a little bit about your journey? I was in Detroit teaching in high school, Benedictine High School, a small Catholic high school. It was always my intention to go back to the university and get a graduate degree. My interest uh, was in getting a hopefully a PhD in European medieval history. 
And so I applied to a number of places, uh, Georgetown and here, and there was another place I forgot. I was accepted in all of them, I, and so I, but I decided to come to CUA. Now, as I told you before, I applied for medieval history. This being Catholic University, I just uh, felt that they would emphasize the studies of uh, European history, especially with emphasis on church history. Mm-hmm. And being a, a high school graduate uh, trained by the Jesuits, I figured, you know, I'll just follow their footsteps if I can. But when I came on the first day to register, the chairman of the Department of History, Professor Manuel Cordoso, he said to me, you know, with your background, because I was born in Baghdad, but I came here as a teenager, he said, we have a department called Department of Semitic and Egyptian Languages. Maybe you would like to take a course in Arabic or something else and use it to your benefit because of your background where you studied and and the languages that you speak. I said, okay. I had no intention, not because I don't like the Semitics, as you can see, I am part of it now. Mm -hmm. But I just, it wasn't my intention. I was trying to do, hopefully, something in in medieval Europe Mm -hmm. history. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I'll go. And I, I will talk to the chairman and see what he has. So I came in to the chairman of the department. I talked to him. His name is Aloysius Fitzgerald, specialist in Hebrew languages. So I talked to him for about an hour. He asked me where I come from, what languages I speak, what uh, kind of uh, uh, church I belong to, and my background. So I gave him all the information. It took me about an hour. At the end, he says, well, we have a lot of courses that you can take, but let me ask you this. Why are you in the history department? <laughs> I said, what do you mean, brother? He says, you belong here. You don't belong there. <laughs> and I said, but you don't know anything about me. You haven't seen my... He says, look, you were accepted there. You told me about a, in one hour about your past history, the languages and your background, trained by the Jesuit. He says, I really think you should come to this department. Something happened, I changed my mind right there. I went back to the history department, and Professor Cardoza says, well, what courses are you going to take? I say, well, they have a lot of courses, but uh, can I tell you that I'm transferring? (laughs) 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 He says, wait a minute. It's a good first meeting for an advisor, advisee. (laughs) He said, you want to be part of this medics department? I said, yes. He says, who did you talk to? I said, Brother Aloysius Fitzgerald. He said, I should have known. (laughs) 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 They were good friends, but he knew him. So anyway, so eventually that's how I came to Semitics and got my MA and then eventually PhD with interruption of working for the U.S. Department of State. Well, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that if we could. You just mentioned that you had some interruptions with the studies, and there's a, a decent gap, not entirely unique, between getting your master's to getting the Ph.D. Yeah. So what was it like to work with the State Department? What did you do? As much as you can share. Yeah. First of all, this was a, a contract work. Okay. I was not a full-time because I was not interested. 
the nature of the uh, uh, of the work was uh, I worked as a simultaneous interpreter or con consecutive interpreter and uh, as a linguist. We would be given assignments one month at a time. These are high level with the diplomats who come to the United States. And then I would be the official interpreter, but I go one month at a time. And so you can see, if I take three assignments, I'm gone for three months of the year. Abroad? Well, sometimes I did go abroad, you know. Not all, mostly it was in the U.S. Okay. So most of my assignments were in the U.S. So we will meet Congress, State Department, government agencies, and, and what have you. And depending on the subject matter, I'd be the official interpreter. I was there for 35 years of the State Department, mm -hmm. and they used to call me the Dean of Interpreters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, That's an intense nickname. Right, right. Yeah, Go uh, see the Dean. Go see the Dean. Yeah. A, a it's fitting, though. A real Dean. <laughs> you know. How did you get involved there? How, how did you get started? I think third year or fourth, maybe third year of my studies here, I said, well, I'm so interested in languages. Let me try something. Maybe I can make use of my background. So somebody said to me, why don't you try the State Department? I said, hmm, that's interesting. So I did call them, and they said, we have an opening. Can you come in to the department, which is, you know, downtown? I said, sure. So I put on a jacket and a tie, <laughs> and I went down there, and so I was introduced to the head of the uh, Near East uh, Languages section. And so we talked for a while, and then... I believe the head of the of the department said, how would you like to work for us? I said, well, I just came in today to find out what's going on. I have no idea you know, what you guys do. You know. He says, can you come tomorrow for a, a full interview with the actual uh, full-time linguist and interpreter for the State Department? Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, we can give you a test so anyway, I went the next day, mm -hmm. and so they gave me a test, English into Arabic, Arabic into English. But then they started asking questions, what is called in, in language of State Department, uh, interpreting the American scenes. And so they will give you, you know, if something happens, and how would you react to this? What would you say if, some, you know, the politician or the diplomat, uh, for some reason, is uh, not happy. And then uh, the regular full-time uh, interpreter and translator came, and he says, I have to give you a test now. So he says, I'm going to read something in English, give it back to me in Arabic, you don't have to write it, and then it would be, I'll give you something in Arabic and give it back to me mm -hmm. in English. And So he did. And then we went out for coffee uh, in the hall or somewhere. And he said, thank you very much, and we are so happy that you're here. We will let you know of the results. You know, To be honest, I wasn't sure, because I know that in the State Department, less than 4% passed the exam. Wow. Yeah, because it's oh, Arabic. Gosh. Because yeah. it's Arabic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the next day, I'm not kidding you. The next day, I had a special letter from them offering me a position. Wow. 
So I did that for 35 years. So let me get this straight. You, you went and visited, you interviewed and you got the job within three days. Well, to be honest, to to be honest, I did. Yeah. Yeah. And then you spent 35 years there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still officially on their email. Okay. If it is a translation, I can do it. You know, 35 years has been, uh, uh, an eye-opener for me because I was able to see every state in the Union except for Hawaii because they felt that there's no need for the diplomat to go all the way to Hawaii. I have lots of reports because at the end of each, I had to write a assignment report, you know. I have a great deal of memories because I'm so grateful in the sense that I have befriended so many people, really, it was a great, great exercise, you know, in knowing America as it is. And, mm-hmm. and not only the fact that it gave me citizenship back in 72, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. Uh, and I was able also to bring Semitics into the lives of some people, if nothing else, just uh, from a linguistic, mm-hmm. you know, perspective. Semitics are good for the soul. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So the day that you, you know, you put on the jacket and the tie yes. and you went over there, what was it about, I guess, that day or that moment that made you decide, okay, I want to see what this is about? Because I feel as if oftentimes as professionals, we can get into a groove of, you know, the profession that we're already in or already are, are focused or tunnel visioned on our studies or and this is the direction that we want to go. I think... Down deep, I felt a strong commitment. I want to do something for my country that gave me citizenship. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, one way of doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, teaching would be another one. But uh, I just felt uh, I am standing at a window. On this side, you have the Arab world. On this side, you have the United States or the Western world. And I can turn to the West and say, this is how I see this. And I can turn to this side and say, this is how the U.S. sees you guys. And so this bridging of the gap, for me, has always been part of my education that I took from the Jesuit when they trained me in high school, but also at home. Uh, There's something in the Christian faith that says you have to bring people together. So this is what I... Uh, have done as you can look at me by my age I'm still teaching because I feel something special about imparting knowledge that I think I have and is good to students you know and he's great example of of a great student so I'm a student I don't know about the great example well yeah (laughs) anyway but well, I know. You were my student. <laughs> there you go. Leave it up to the dean of interpreting. Yeah, that yeah that's right. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, all exactly. those early warnings of Arabic with Dr. Talia, yeah, Garshuni yeah. with Dr. Talia. That's right, yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. So, Dr. Talia, you've been doing research in Arabic, and you yourself speak Neo-Aramaic. And yes. that's a language that's, you know, depending on what numbers you look at, I think, 500,000 to maybe a million people worldwide left today speak that. So it's a very small percentage of the population and part of the Chaldean Catholic Church, which is also doing cultural preservation for 
Syriac and Aramaic and Arabic traditions, especially Christian traditions. And so I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about both of those, the Aramaic-speaking peoples and then the Chaldean church, and then how that relates to preserving culture and how you have viewed that through your career. Yeah, the Chaldean church is part of a Syriac tradition that really goes back to the first century from the time of uh, St. Thomas who came to that part of the world. The language that we speak to this day is called Neo-Aramaic, which is uh, sort of a modern type of Aramaic. I speak the language, my siblings still speak the language, and they all live in the U.S. Aramaic language is the language of the liturgy that we use when we go to Mass. But the native language I grew up has always been Neo-Aramaic. So when I meet with my siblings, as a matter of course, as a matter of custom and tradition, we always speak Neo-Aramaic. Even when I have nephews and nieces who know a little bit of Neo-Aramaic, I speak with them in Neo-Aramaic, then they answer back. If they know a word or two, they will answer. You know, they would, for example, they would call me Khalu Shawqi, mm. you know, for uncle. It's not easy to continue this language because by the second, third generation, there's a tendency for everybody to blend in to become part of the American way of life, including the language. And so my late mother, God rest her soul, she used to tell my brother, his wife is American, and he's from the old country, and he said, why don't you teach them Neo-Aramaic? And he would say, well, but Jane, my wife, she doesn't know the language. She'd say, yeah, but what about you? <laughs> but uh, so they know a few words like, how are you? And, and what did you eat today? And they will give you these words. But fluency, I'm afraid to say that it's not there anymore. And so... We always make an effort to speak in this Neo-Aramaic because this is our language. It's not trying to put a show for somebody. It's just a habit. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. You yeah. know, you can't, mm -hmm. you, I can't break away from it. Mm -hmm. He knows, I use an example. My last name is, even though it's a, it begins with a T, actually is a ta, Talia, mm -hmm. which is a good Aramaic word, which means young. And uh, this is the masculine. Yeah. So I always tell people, hey, look at me. And listen, Talia, that's a biblical name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your first name is, has a good meaning too, right? Yeah. Sh well, Shawqi is it's an Arabic name, which means the word Shawq means love. Mm -hmm. And the E, the ending, is the genitive, which means my love. And so my love is young. I mean, I mean that's yeah, that's, oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> right? Oh my you know, gosh! You were born to be a romantic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm so grateful that I can still speak near Aramaic. The liturgy uh, during Mass is in the classical Syriac or classical Aramaic, but at home uh, it's called uh, Surath. That's the dialectical form for this Neo-Aramaic. I have uh, a prejudice not only for my own dialect Neo-Aramaic, for any language. To me, this is how 
uh, 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 you feel and understand the other side when you know the language of those people, you know. But maybe in the age of technology, uh, things are going to change completely. I don't know. But uh, I'm glad we have students who have taken these languages. Would you be able to read for us one of your Neo-Aramaic poems? This is uh, a poem that I composed at a conference called Durushe, which took place here, and then it moves from place to place, uh, organized by Hugoyo, you know, Beth Mardutha, which is in New Jersey under the auspices of George Kiraz. And the organizer asked me if I would be willing to present something, you know, in Neo-Aramaic. I will read it in uh, uh, Neo-Aramaic or Surath, and then I have the English translation. Great. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, buckle yeah. up. This is called Msaibranutha. I will do the translation once I'm done. Is that hope? Yes, yeah. you got okay. it. Okay. It's in there. Mm. Okay. There you go. <laughs> okay. People believe me now that I actually study these things. <laughs> okay, okay. So, Pshimid Baba, Bruna, Ruhat Kucha. امشيها هلا بمركثة بآذي يوم ملفا نوثا من طليوثي لشاني هاوسورة في حلويا لشاند يماثا وبابواثا من زونا وأتي قوثا أخواثي وخثواثي بشينا بقووخن كلوخن تلميذ وملفانة وناشد ما فيش قانوثة إيوخ آخاب آذي بيث كنوشة أسكوليا كاثوليكا أبقو حشب ثانوثة هاووتن أختن مدراشة ديدعوثة مهونوثة ديوخن هوية موهبتا تعلموثة هاوا يوم ديوخن كل بريخة ثيلوخ أثشبثة من قريب ورحقوثة قديش إد آذي مدن حيثة إد إيلا أمن آذي عدانا برختم ليث سفيروثة Now I'm going to give you the English. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, grant us blessings on this day of discerning. From my youth, melodious Syriac was my tongue, the language of forefathers and foremothers since long time passing. My brothers and sisters, greetings and welcome I bid you all. Students and teachers, ye people of scholarly ruminating, we have gathered here in this house of study, the Catholic University, a lyceum for edifying. You are a paladin of wisdom. May your perspicacity be to the world a gift illuminating. May your daily pilgrimage be a blessed one. Today from near and afar you are hailing. Saints of the Syrian church are with us. On this hallowed day, a time with wisdom abounding. Wow. It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, as I said, uh, uh, you work with the 
wording, but uh, it's it's all there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that in English it. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's, yeah. Thank you that's so much beautiful. for that. Oh, Thank you. Oh, Thank you're, you. You're welcome. While you were going through it, I was just closing my eyes and letting myself feel what was being said, and I I was picking up on some of it. And I'm oh, telling well, you, that's so. English. That's yeah. so, I hope so good. Yeah. I hope the so. rhythm and yeah. the yeah, yeah, yeah. The diction and yeah. the yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank exactly. you very much. Yeah. I really uh, I enjoy doing that for the public. I mean, because uh, as much as I hate to say it. It's a dying language. This is one of the few places in this country that you can study those kinds of things. And so Mm. it makes, I think, the university a treasure in many ways, but especially with some of the programs that we have here, including, you know, I'm biased, but the Semitics department. (laughs) The people in the Semitics department. Yes, yes. Dr. Talia, I'm wondering if you can talk to us. So you've been researching and teaching for a while as well. So what are some of the things that you've learned about teaching languages or teaching literature that you could share with folks that are listening? You know, I grew up in an environment where language is so important for conveying what you feel inside to someone else. And Semitic languages, because of the nature of having the root so the beauty of a language in, in the Semitic tradition is that you take the root and then you have various meanings and it is those meanings that you work with but it's the same root and you have to know how to use it in order to really convey. In my judgment, when I can teach a language and a student can understand me and reply, to my question, textually, whether it's uh, Neo-Aramaic or Garshuni or Classical Arabic, or even in Modern Arabic, you are able to fully appreciate that human being who is facing you. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because if you do not understand the language of the other side, this is where you fail to appreciate every human being. Mm. Mm -hmm. For example, I also do a lot of reading in Proverbs, Mm -hmm. in Syriac Proverbs, or even in Neo-Aramaic Proverbs. One way of appreciating the other side, but when you want to educate them, Mm -hmm. but without hurting their feelings. Mm -hmm. For example, when somebody comes in after a long absence, to your house, there are two ways. If the person is, let's say, a patriarch, well, he has a right not to be there every day. He's too busy. So you, the village says to him, The village rises to greet you, O patriarch. On the other hand, somebody who comes to visit you after a absence of two or three years, you say the same thing. Hmm. You say, which means the village rises to greet you. Why not? And why are we doing this? Five years we haven't seen you. (laughs) I mean, I could tell, hey, Joe, where have you been? (laughs) Right? (laughs) But this way, it's... Mm-hmm. An easy way of saying, where have you been? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so 
see, the use of language has to be like a catharsis. Mm -hmm. You allow it to work on the other side. It allow you allow it to work on you too. You know, it takes two. Mm -hmm. Really, that's what language is all about. And so, I'm thoroughly convinced that many of the issues that we have in this world, including theological issues, deal with the the notion that I did not explain to the other side fully what I had in mind. Yeah. I I mean, I can sit here and talk for hours and hours uh, about it, but language is so important. Not to be... Uh, someone a specialist in the language but but to be able to use it in a way that you don't lose sense of what the other side is saying and vice versa yeah well I, I, a lot of the conversations we've had so far on this podcast have been with folks who work in communications and i think that's a theme right. that has emerged mm -hmm. is respecting the person across the table yeah. and yes. understanding where they're yes. coming from Absolutely. and yeah. all yeah. the background that they're Mm -hmm. bringing to the conversation. But see, even more so, for example, uh, somebody who can study, let's say, classical Arabic, study the Quran, study the sayings of the Prophet, when you know the original language and you read it and appreciate it, then maybe you can understand what motivates people on the other side to do whatever they do. Mm -hmm. Right, okay? right, yeah. I always uh, used to tell my colleagues at the State Department, it's not enough to be able to speak the language. That won't do you any good. You have to understand what the actual word in the context of the sentence means so that you as a diplomat can understand and go to the higher up and say, I think what he means, and that's because that's in the language right. of these people. Yeah. yeah, That's great. Thank you for that, Dr. Talia. Oh, you're quite welcome. I'm digesting. This is so good. Yeah. It's yeah, so just good. Just drinking it in. It's like yeah. a fire hose. <laughs> well, Ryan, Dr. Talia, this is our blast from the past segment. Okay. <laughs> so it's a fun name because it's a fun thing we get to do. Yeah. We look through the university archives to see if we can find interesting things, fun things, difficult things about the university or about our guest. And Dr. Tully, you've been here for a while, and so there's many different places you show up. I found some pretty great pictures of you from the 70s in the yearbooks. Oh, yeah. Oh. Uh, nice. <laughs> those are wonderful. And there's many stories about you in, that you're quoted in from the Tower, the university newspaper, through the years. And I found oh. one from the 90s, from Friday, September 30th, 1994. And this is an article entitled, Special Collections Set for Move to Keene. And so I'll read a little bit of it to give our listeners okay. a sense. And if okay. you want to find it, you can click on the link in the show description for the rest of the article. So the article says... Nestled in the basement of the John K. Mullen Library, the special collections of the Oliviera Lima Library and the artifacts and artworks of the museum's collections are being compiled. Skipping down a little bit, the university also possesses a treasure that has been described as an eclectic combination, many of which are high quality, according to Shoki Talia, who heads the cataloging of the content of the museum collection. He is documenting the contents of the CUA vaults that contain pieces that were once a part of a museum collection on the third floor of McMahon. The collection was uprooted in the 1940s and temporarily moved to the sublevels of the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. Some portions are also floating around offices throughout the campus. 
Quote, the university community has been very encouraging and the administration supportive during the long process, Talia said, a process in which Talia appreciates all information he can obtain on the history of any objects. So there's a nice picture from the 1940s in this article of the museum in McMahon Hall. Listeners should click on the link and look at that picture because I think now that is used for academic space. But Dr. Dahlia, you were part of putting together the university's collections and its own history and other things that we had, like many other interesting things. In the 97 article, it says there was that we had an Egyptian mummy head as oh. part of the university collection at oh one point. My oh, gosh. oh, okay. Maybe it came to me as a reference. Maybe. And that's how I put it. Mm-hmm. My involvement in the so-called museum of the university is the director of the library, Adele Schwalik, had asked me, because she, I guess, found that I was very much interested in art. I mean, I have a good collection of art books and, and archaeology. And uh, and if you are from a place like where I came from, born Baghdad, Babylon is 30 miles. Mm-hmm. Babylon. Yeah. Nineveh is 250 miles. Mm-hmm. And Sumer, down south, is about 300 miles. Mm-hmm. Gosh. So, Baghdad itself oh is my a goodness. world-class city. I mean, wow! I, you know, you, I'm, yeah. I'm there. <laughs> oh, my God. It's an understated way oh of putting it. Oh, my gosh. You know, you know, so anyway, so I, when I was uh, talking to Adele Schwalik, and she got to know me because I was studying here, I worked in the medieval library, which was on the first floor, but now it's, it's, it's closed. You know, and they have shifted everything. Anyway, so she asked me, she said, how would you like to, now that you have finished your doctorate and and you passed and everything, how would you like to do something like organize an inventory and then you give us uh, on each sheet of paper what it is, who gave it, if possible, dimensions and what have you, with a little description of what the university has. And I didn't know really what I was getting into. <laughs> Sounds like tedious work. <laughs> well, not only that, but you ha- I had no idea where these things were. There was a reference to them, you know. So I said, sure. So after f- three full years, I don't know what the number was. I mean, John Shepard can tell you how many pieces are inter- I mean, uh, uh, looked at, made notations for hmm. maybe... 2,000 or 3,000, I forgot. Yeah. And I found out that the university, from the day it came to be as a university, always received gifts mm-hmm. in terms of arts, in terms of archaeological artifacts, special books. And uh, it was a tradition, I think, in the Catholic Church for families to give something to the university. Mm. And so... On the other hand, after three years, I realized that many of those things are missing. I have no idea, and nobody seems to know. Hmm. Wow. Now, it's possible that some were lost. It's possible that they were in somebody's apartment who lived on campus, Mm -hmm. and when they passed away, everybody thought it was part of the family, Mm. and then they just went. And there are so many letters people writing to the university in the maybe 20s, 30s, and 40s saying, I have this, 
would you like to acquire this just as a gift? I still remember, and uh, to the best of my memory, I'm not wrong, there was a letter that was sent to the university. Somebody offered to give a painting by the great Italian Caravaggio. He's one of the greatest of all. But the university said, no, we don't have a place for it. It can uh, hang in my office. Uh, <laughs> I have some of the university archive collections in here. Yeah. I mean, we have things like the tiara mm -hmm. of Pope Leo XIII, mm -hmm. the founder mm -hmm. of the university. Yeah. Sometimes they exhibit that. Mm -hmm. uh, we have, I think, from the Fiji Islands, I guess, the kind of uniform they wear made out of bark. Mm -hmm. I don't know where it is now, but I did see it at one time. There are photos when the main room of the museum was in McMahon. Mm -hmm. What happened to those, I don't know. You would be the one to know. <laughs> Not really, because <laughs> they were and there are no more. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. At one time, somebody gave, you know what a netsuki is? I don't. It's a Japanese special kind of carving, uh, a large number of them. And I think there were a hundred and something. I think now they are maybe down to, I don't know, 30 something. Hmm. Mm -hmm. They might be somewhere. Yeah. Now the university archives are mostly housed in Aquinas Hall and Curley Hall. And they have a vault and you can go if you work on campus and you can go and look and Been say. Been there I'm, many a time. I'm, sh I'm sure you have for your projects. Yeah. And That's I've got cool. some things in my office from there. But they are, uh, and there are a lot of paintings and mm -hmm. some are... Uh, uh, really beautiful, maybe not that uh, valuable, but they were given as a gift. Mm -hmm. But at least we have references to these things that are part of the of the university. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure everything can be reconstructed and and perhaps uh, acquire what maybe some of the things that were lost. But it was uh, to me uh, an eye opener because I was able to see the affection between the Catholic Church and its public, mm -hmm. mm. the faithful. Mm -hmm. yeah. And not everybody was Catholic who mm -hmm. gave things. You sure. Know. Uh, I have to tell you, it was a tradition in my family until the day I left when I was like 17 or 16. We had a, a good-sized library at home. Some stuff we had first edition. Mm. I mean, like, I still remember we had... The Origin of the Species by Darwin. First edition. Yeah, first edition. Wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. And this is another thing that I strongly believe. If you don't have memories, you cannot relate to anybody. Mm. Mm -hmm. If you don't have memory, you don't have a future. Mm. And I, I, I don't know if I have told you in class, but I always tell my students, it is so important that you continue to have memories, whether they are good or bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But memories are something that keeps us going because you can fall back. If they are sweet, you can fall back on them. If they are hurting, mm -hmm. still, they make you a better person. So all my books that I have, to me, someday there'll be memories. I don't know where or in how, but, you know, it, it is very important that these things should not be broken. Memories are a continuation of life. Mm -hmm. and. and I sound like nostalgic, but I, <laughs> I know from, you know, from history, my history. Well, I just have, I guess, one, one follow-up for the students that are considering 
or even the prospective students that are considering, you know, maybe they haven't studied a language up until this point. Be they're just now thinking about it, considering it. Other than, of course, you know, what career path you go into should help you in that decision. But what are some other factors that they should consider when they're thinking about not just the language, but the culture and understanding the people? For one thing, I remind students, you cannot separate a human being from his culture. By that I mean you cannot separate the individual from the literature of that group. In order for you to really understand what happened in the past and why and how we are heading, you must understand the literature of these people. In the language in which they write, mm -hmm. I can always read something in German or in English, but I need to read if I'm doing Semitic languages. You have to read it in the original. That's why this department is one of a kind in the country because it's a textual department. Mm. I do teach a course called Arabic Literature in Translation. Mm. All the universities have that. Okay. But the rest of the work is Syriac text, Hebrew text, Aramaic, Coptic, Gershuni, Classical Arabic, Ethiopic. These you study in the language of these people. So when I, when I read these languages, when I read a text, I come to appreciate what the people who have this as a native language. Mm -hmm. And this way I can understand why things happen the way they happened mm -hmm. and why they might happen if we don't understand the language. And so to me, maybe I'm biased because I grew up speaking all these dialects of of Arabic and Classical Arabic and Neo-Aramaic and Syriac. Language has a place because it really touches, in, in the Classical Arabic we say, the way to the heart is through your language mm -hmm. and vice versa. You don't have to be a politician. You don't have to be a diplomat. Just feel it for its own sake. I, I never fail to emphasize the importance of language. You know, it's really like uh, the elixir of life. It's not enough to push a button and I get a translation on my phone. You know, that's not it. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you. This has been wonderful yeah yes. yeah thank you this has been like ryan said wonderful thank you so much mm -hmm. dr talia yeah. and as always thank you for listening to this episode of cardinal conversations yeah always a pleasure to do this with you ryan and we are grateful to our guests as well as to the center for academic and career success and the office of alumni engagement for allowing us to partner together to hear and learn from our alumni career stories yeah you can find links to resources for the blast from the past and other interesting things in the show description in your podcast if you'd like to support the students, research, and mission of the Catholic University of America, you can also click on the giving link in the show description as well. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Until next time.